next one. Okay, uh, let me just read uh, Psalm 119.34 for a minute. Psalm 119.34, David says there, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Uh, We want to continue to talk tonight about the importance of studying the Bible as being very foundational to the Christian life. Uh, This will be our third and final lesson on this topic before we move on and talk about just other basic stuff in the Christian life uh, beginning next Sunday night. But uh, again tonight, just continuing uh, looking at how to study your Bible and uh, looking tonight in particular at issues of interpretation and application. Again, David said, give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Folks, acting on what God says assumes that we've read and understand what God says, right? And that's why after observation, the second major step in Bible study is interpretation. And that's where you ask the question, what does it mean? Now, you remember that scene in Acts chapter 8 between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? The eunuch had been up to Jerusalem to worship. While he was there, he bought a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. And he was going back to Ethiopia. And uh, he was reading the scroll. And he didn't know what it meant. He asked Philip, who's he talking about? Himself or somebody else? And the Bible says that Philip got up in the chariot with him and explained the text to him and ended up leading him uh, to faith in Christ. And so Philip helped guide the man uh, into understanding what the text meant, interpretation. And it was only after the man understood was he able to uh, place his faith in Christ. And so in a very real sense, the step of interpretation helped introduce the gospel to Africa. Now the first thing I want you to think of tonight with me, what do we mean by interpretation? Well... Every book of the Bible has a message, and that message can be understood. Uh, Do you ever wonder uh, sometimes whether the Bible is just a giant riddle? Well, God didn't intend for it to be a riddle. It's His revelation. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, He says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's not playing a hide-and-seek game with us. In fact, he's more interested than we are in the fact that we would understand his word. Now, how is it that two different students of the Bible can look at the same verse and come up with two entirely different meanings? In fact, some people will come up with opposing meanings. Can they both be right? No. 
But unfortunately, many people today have decided that the laws of logic don't apply to Scripture. To them, it doesn't really matter uh, whether you see the text as blue or whether you see it as green. For them, it's just all purely subjective. But folks, if we're doing solid interpretation, what's, what's the word for interpretation? The science of interpretation. What's that word? Hermeneutics. Exactly. So if we're engaged in solid biblical hermeneutics, we'll come up with the basic meaning of the text. Now, true, as we sit around in Sunday school class, we may have many applications, but we won't have various and conflicting meanings of the text. Meaning is is not just our subjective reading of the text, but it's God's objective truth that's read out of the text. And that's why interpretation is the recreation process. We're attempting to stand in the author's shoes and recreate his experience, to think as he thought, to feel as he felt, to decide as he decided. We're asking, what did this mean to him? What did he intend to communicate before we ever ask the question, what does it mean to me? You see, a lot of times we're too anxious to say, what does it mean to me, before we first of all establish... What does it mean? The text says what it says, and it means what it means. And so we have to get at that before we can get at how does it apply to me. In a Sunday school class, you may have 20 people apply the text in 20 different ways to their lives. Does that mean it has 20 different meanings? No, it has one meaning. But different applications in our lives. Okay? Interpretation always begins with good what? Now this ought to be easy. It's what we've been talking about in previous Sessions. Close. Observation. Exactly. Observation. Interpretation begins with good observation. That's why we covered observation first. Who was the writer? Who was the audience? What was their culture like? What were their customs? What do we see in the text? Observation is like doing good excavation. And then interpretation is like erecting the structure. But observation is the foundation. uh, Buildings are always determined by their foundations. The more substantial the foundation, the more substantial the superstructure can be. Now the quality of interpretation is always going to be based on the quality of your observation. It's impossible to understand what a writer means until you first simply observe what he said. 
And so to observe well means that we can interpret well. Now, that also means that observation is never an end in and of itself. You're observing so that you can understand. And so the better your observation is, the better your interpretation will be. The more haphazard your observation is, the less accurate your observation will be. Now, oftentimes, good, solid observation will answer all the questions of interpretation, and the flow is natural. And so you're really not left having to put any pieces together. But again, interpretation, we're simply referring to the basic meaning of the text that God intended to communicate through that text. Well, secondly, why do we even need interpretation? Why do we need it? Why do we need to spend time thinking about interpretation? Okay, why is it a challenge? Time and culture has separated us from the biblical writer, correct? There's language barriers. Now, here's where reading the Bible in several different translations can help immensely. Different translations of the Bible, like I told you last Sunday night, are basically like commentaries. You're seeing how translation committee dealt with that particular word or phrase, and that sheds light on, on the meaning of it. Then not only language barriers, but there's cultural barriers. This is where some commentaries can help or background study material. They can help explain about the common customs of the day that otherwise you and I wouldn't know much about. Then there's communication barriers, the encoding and decoding to make sure we're on target with that. Have you ever messed up with that? With your spouse, the encoding and decoding? Anybody have an illustration, something your wife told you to do and you interpreted it differently than what she meant or vice versa? Right? Your wife might have asked you to fill up her car with gas. Let's say you forgot and on the way to church night you say, honey, while you're out, go ahead and get some gas. Well, what do you mean? You meant you encoded, I forgot. Can you get some gas? What's she necessarily here? Get it yourself. I didn't have time anyway. (laughs) Communication barriers. Now, what are some hazards to avoid? First of all, misreading the text. The problem is not with the Word of God. It's with my understanding of the text. If we misread the text, we're going to misinterpret it. For example, 1 Timothy 6.10, the Bible says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Now, how could that verse be misread and so misinterpreted? Money is the root of all evil. Is that what it says? 
No. What's it say? The love of money is the root of all evil. How about when David said, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What if I just hear, God's going to give me the desires of my heart. Have I misread the text? Yeah. I've missed the condition, right? If I first of all delight myself in the Lord. A lot of people are simply careless with their reading. And this leads to careless interpretations. So misreading the text. Then a second problem can be distorting the text. The cults are famous for distorting the text. For example, if you were to turn to Colossians chapter 2 and read in Colossians 2, where where Jesus is very God of very God, same essence in nature, the word that describes that, phatos, Jehovah Witnesses don't like that. Because, oh boy, they don't believe Jesus is very God of very God. So you know what they do? They cut out that word thetos, and they simply substitute in a whole new word. Now, you can look at your critical apparatus at the bottom of your page in your Greek New Testament that tells all the variant readings, that's, all the different manuscripts and variant, variant readings that have ever shown up on that particular verse, and there's not a variant reading anywhere that supports the new word they stick in. They have no basis for plugging in a new word. But they plug in a new word. To say now that Jesus is a man with some godlike qualities. Ooh, now that's different, isn't it? Because the Greek word thetos means he's very God of very God, same essence in nature as God. But again, they pull that out, and now the verse reads in the New World Translation that Jesus is just a man with some godlike qualities. Distorting the text. Distorting the text. And that leads, of course, to faulty interpretation. Folks, you and I have no right to change a biblical word to suit our fancy or to make the Bible say what we want it to say. But misreading the text, distorting the text, a third problem in interpretation oftentimes is over-spiritualizing the text. Let's say we're talking, somebody's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they say, well, what the writer meant to say is not that Jesus rose from the dead, but spiritually speaking, he rose from the dead. And so they say what the Bible means by resurrection is simply that you're going to have new life in Christ, not that you're going to be bodily raised and live somewhere eternally. But that's not what the Bible says at all about resurrection. You read the passages dealing with resurrection, you understand that Jesus literally bodily rose from the dead. 
And he promises us that when we die, our soul will go to be with him in heaven. And one day, we'll get a new resurrection body. And then there's the problem of subjectivism. Here's a big no-no. Many Christians are nothing more than mystics when they come to their Bible reading. They don't want to put any serious study into their Bible reading. They just want to subjectively read their Bible, see how it strikes them. And when they come across a, a verse that they like, they grab a hold of it without considering context or anything else. They want that liver quiver, that good feeling. They're just after the liver quiver. They just want to read something, keep reading until something strikes their fancy. And then there's coming to a text with presuppositions. Now, this is where you think, oh, I know what that passage already says. I don't have to study it. But you study it and you might learn some new things about it. Well, let me give you some insights on interpretation. Ask yourself, what type of literature is this? Uh, the genre. Is it historical narrative? Historical narrative tells you the story of God's dealings with his people. Let's say, for instance, you're studying First Samuel. What you get is the story of how God put down the house of Eli because of corruption and raised up Samuel to be the judge and the prophet over Israel. And you'll trace how God prepared Samuel, how he had him go and anoint Israel's first king. And First Samuel tells the story of how we come upon King David and God's plans for David. And so historical narrative simply tells the story of how God dealt with the Israelites. So like reading a biography. And then there's wisdom literature and poetry. Uh, books like the Psalms and Proverbs. Pithy sayings to live by. Common sense wisdom. Then there's parables. If I'm studying a, a parable, I see that it's a story that Jesus told to, to make a point. Usually there'll be a main point that he makes. Every single little detail in a parable doesn't always mean something. I'll talk about this more in a minute, but the early church fathers, uh, they over-allegorized parables. And I'll talk a minute about the parable of the Good Samaritan a little later. Well, Adolf Ulicker, in a book in 1888, published uh, just a, a monumental book on the interpretation of parables that really all books since then have kind of followed. And, and he made the point in parable interpretation, there is one main intersection where the heavenly and the earthly uh, intersect. And you don't try to make every single detail in a parable stand on all fours. Then there's prophetic material. Then apocalyptic material. Like we're going through on Revelation on Sunday mornings. A lot of images. Some of them pretty scary to think about. This morning, the beast. The, the Antichrist. The beast being used to describe the Antichrist. And then there's that woman on seven, sitting on seven hills. Who's that? Or what's that? Would you interpret that literally? A woman who sat on seven mountains or seven hills? 
If, boy, if that's liberal, uh, literal, uh, you don't want to run into her on a back alley at night, do you? It's describing Rome. Images. Then epistles, letters to congregations. And in an epistle, uh, the, the writer is addressing a specific concern or need within that congregation. And then there's didactic material, books like the book of James, just highly instructional, gnomic truths, timeless truths, didactic material. Well, we need to not only ask ourselves what type of literature is this, the the genre, but what's the context? The context. Remember the old song, the knee bone's connected to the thigh bone, the thigh bone's connected to the hip bone, the hip bone's connected to the tailbone. Now hear the word of the Lord. You remember that, don't you? Context is important. Adrian Rogers used to say, a text without a context is but a pretext. By context, I mean we've got to pay attention to what comes before, what comes after the passage I'm studying. How does the passage I'm studying fit into the overall message of that book? If I say to you, read what happened to Judas Iscariot, what did he do to himself in the end? You say, well, he went out and hung himself. What what if I then said to you, then hear the word of the Lord, and and I picked a verse where Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. You'd say those passages... That he went out and hung himself and go down and do likewise aren't even connected and they're not. Context. We've got to pay attention to context. In 2 Timothy 2.16, the Bible says, avoid worldly and empty chatter. Does this mean that the Christian is never to say anything or never tell even a clean joke? No, if you're studying 2 Timothy in context, you'll see that that Paul was encouraging Timothy to be different than the false teachers around him who used to wrangle about words and fuss with one another and get into meaningless arguments and debates. Also take advantage of consultation. What's that? That involves looking at secondary sources after you've done your own studies. You see, we never want to be so arrogant in our study of the Word of God that that we kind of come to the position that we think that we can't learn from anybody else. We never want to get to that point. Because the truth of the matter is there are people who've made it their life's calling to study the Bible and the languages and culture of the Bible and write down their, their studies so it can benefit the church. Good secondary sources can help keep us honest in our own study. If we come up with some kind of novel interpretation on a passage that nobody else has ever, ever, ever thought of, guess what? We probably have missed the mark. We probably haven't interpreted it correctly. Again, though, never use commentaries as a substitute for studying the Bible yourself. 
Also realize that Scripture won't contradict Scripture. The best interpretation for Scripture is other Scripture. Scripture may enlarge upon an earlier thought and give you more meat to chew on uh, with that doctrine, but you should never come up with an interpretation that conflict conflicts with another Scripture. If you've been studying a passage and you say, but wait a minute, what I've concluded about this passage means that this passage over here must be wrong, then you need to go back to your studies. Your interpretation would be skewed because Scripture doesn't, doesn't conflict Scripture. Let me give you an example of that in 1 Timothy 3 when it says a deacon is to be a mia genukas andras, a one-woman man. You got a man in the church, godly man, his wife dies. Okay? His wife dies. Let's say five years down the road, he remarries. Is that a violation of 1 Timothy 3? No. Because what's Romans 7 say about that? Romans 7, Paul gives the analogy that when a spouse dies and the surviving spouse remarries later on, there's not the stigma of adultery. It's acceptable. So you see, Scripture doesn't doesn't uh, contradict other scripture. Always seek the full counsel of the word of God. If you're studying sanctification, for instance, you may want to get out your concordance and try to find all the places in the Bible where sanctification is dealt with. If you were doing a topical study, that is, on something like sanctification, find out where that's taught in all the different places in the Bible and study all those together and see how one passage sort of builds on another. Don't, don't try to build an entire doctrine off of just one verse. When, when possible, uh, unless it's evident not to do so, you need to always interpret Scripture literally. Unless you've got an indication in the text that it's not to be taken literally, then read it at face value. The Bible is not some book of mysticism. Again, God spoke that we might know His truth. And so as you read, read the Bible in its natural, normal sense as you would other writings. Don't be looking around for secret, hidden meanings in the text. As one writer put it, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Now, folks, this is a huge problem in interpretation. When men depart from a literal interpretation of the Word of God, interpretation then becomes just a free-for-all. A free-for-all in which anybody can do individual mental and theological gymnastics. Now, let me give you an example of that. I told you a while ago about the parables. Parable of the Good Samaritan. You read it in its natural flow. And what, what does that parable teach us? 
be a good neighbor by doing what? Helping. And who's our neighbor? Anybody in need. Okay? Well, in early church history, let me, let me tell you how that was interpreted. The Good Samaritan was Jesus when he poured uh, oil into the man's wounds. He was pouring in justification by faith alone. And when he took him to the inn, the inn was the church and the innkeeper was the apostle Paul. That's the way that parable was interpreted for decades. You see the problem with that? Somebody else might come along and say, why was the Apostle Paul the innkeeper? Why not James or John? I think it was John. That, that kind of interpretation of that parable, just it's a, it's a, it's a free-for-all. Now, I always laugh when I, when I hear in the media um, or read in the media something like, well, so-and-so, and usually they're talking about somebody famous, maybe they're running for office or some kind of position. So-and-so's a, a Christian, and they're a fundamentalist because they believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. Well, if you don't believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, then nothing really means anything. People love, they, they love to hide behind not taking it literally so that they can say, none of the stories in the Bible really mean anything. They'll say, you know, Adam and Eve weren't necessarily real people. Noah's flood didn't happen. The miracles in Egypt didn't happen. Jonah wasn't swallowed by a fish. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. In other words, they just make the Bible a collection of stories that means whatever they want it to mean, and it really ends up meaning nothing. That's the... Excuse me? Uh, yes, he, he, uh, he rewrote the Gospels, taking out the miraculous. So we need to read the Bible, again, unless indicated otherwise, unless it's obvious from, from our study of the text that it's not to be taken literally. It, we need to study it in its uh, grammatical, historical uh, context, and it means what it says, and it says what it says, and means what it means. Literal interpretation. Now, if you're reading something in the Bible that's not meant to be taken literally, I think you've got common sense to figure that out. If you're reading, for instance, that Jesus is the door into the sheepfold, as John's gospel says, I I think you know that Jesus isn't saying that he is a, a maple or an oak, a two by four that's nailed to plywood, with some hinges attached, right? I think you know he's not saying that. We know that he's talking there in figurative language. He's the door, the only way in, literally the only way into the sheepfold, but he's not wood. Ought to be obvious. Now, another thing very important, never use an obscure passage to contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. For instance, from John 10, from Romans 8, 
what are, what, what's a doctrine we could glean from John 10 and Romans 8? Okay. What's the doctrine from Romans 8? The security of the believer. Right? The security of the believer. Same thing with John 10. Now, an obscure passage that theologians have wrestled over would be Hebrews 6. The Arminian interprets Hebrews 6 that you can lose your salvation. Would you want to take Hebrews 6, a debatable passage, and try to reinterpret Romans 8, a clear passage on the security of the believer? No. A clear passage ought to be used to help interpret a cloudy passage, not a cloudy passage to reinterpret a clear passage. You follow what I'm saying? Another thing to do, allow the Old Testament to be clarified by the New Testament. The New Testament may make some Old Testament practice obsolete. If you're studying an Old Testament passage about a particular subject and a New Testament passage teaches on that same subject, the New Testament passage has the last say. For instance, we don't don't bring our sheep and doves and calves and all that to church and sacrifice them, do we? Why do we not do that? Because Christ is the final sacrifice. He was the fulfillment of all those sacrifices, right? So the New Testament has the last say. So use the New Testament to help interpret the old or to help shed light on the old. Let's talk about figuring out the figurative. Again, I've mentioned use the literal sense unless there's some good reason not to. Use the figurative sense when the passage tells you to do so. Some passages give you clues. For instance, if you're studying a dream, you can expect in a dream to come across symbolic language. Daniel's dream of that statue with the gold head, the silver breast and and, uh, uh, arms and uh, bronze torso and the legs of iron. The statue stood for something. It was symbolic. And we're told what it, what it represented, the coming kingdoms of the world. Now, use the figurative sense if the literal meaning is absurd. Like, for instance, Revelation 1.16, where the Lord appears and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What does that mean? Does that mean that the Lord Jesus will be carrying a little literal sword between his teeth? No. What's Hebrews say about the Word of God? It says the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. You study the word used for sword in Revelation, you find out that it's making reference to a large ceremonial sword of victory and judgment. Now, carried, carried by a conquering king, it would be used to execute the vanquished after a triumphal procession. 
Now, consider how that fits with the imagery of Revelation. It does. Use the figurative sense if the literal sense would involve something immoral. Jesus said in John 6, Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Did Jesus mean for us to become cannibals? No. Use the figurative sense if the expression is an obvious figure of speech. Biblical text often signals this. Similes, for instance, they're words like like or as, making comparisons. In the Bible, we have uh, anthropomorphisms. What's that? Assigning to God human characteristics. God's spirit. But we speak of the eyes, the ears, the hands of God. A euphemism, the use of, of a less offensive expression to indicate a more offensive one. When Paul says, for instance, in Galatians 5.12, would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Then there's hyperbole. Exaggeration to say more than is literally meant. Paul said, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to serve you. Hyperbole. Idioms. He was gathered to his people. You hear that in the Old Testament. What's that mean? He died. A metaphor. A comparison in, in which one thing represents another. You're the light of the world. Paradoxes. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it. Rhetorical questions. In God I've put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Nothing. But you don't need to answer a rhetorical question. Simile, again, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. And so in the Bible, we have anthropomorphisms, euphemisms, hyperbole, idioms, metaphors, paradoxes, rhetorical questions, and similes. And you need to understand some of those things, too. You don't, re- you don't run across those things in every chapter or every passage but you run across them periodically. So interpretation, interpretation, getting at the meaning of the text. And it starts with good observation. And again, a text doesn't have two, three, four, five meanings. The text has a meaning. The biblical writer meant something in that passage. We might apply what he meant in different ways to our life, whatever we might be going through in life at that particular time, but that doesn't mean the passage has a hundred different meanings or even two different meanings. It says what it says, means what it means. It's different applications. 
Well, how does it all work? Application, the value of application. Again, going back to 2 Timothy 3, uh, where we read that all Scripture is God-breed, profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What's the Bible intended to bring about in our lives? Change. Transformation. The Bible wasn't simply written to satisfy your curiosity. It was written to change your life. Now, application may be one of the most neglected things and one of the most needed stages. For instance, Americans say by something like 90% that they're Christians. But never before has the nation been at such need. Crimes everywhere, lying, stealing, cheating, adultery, fraud, murder, rape, suicide, abortion, homosexuality, on and on and on and on and on we could go. Tell you what, the majority of Americans saying they're believers, there's some kind of disconnect going on, right? The statistics on divorce. Divorce among professing Christians and church members is generally equal to or about 1% higher among believers than non-believers. Something's wrong, folks. I mean, something's really wrong. We must not be applying the truth. The whole point of Bible study is to put it into practice. And listen to what Paul says about that, how practice adorns the gospel. In, uh, in Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And over in verse 9 of chapter uh, two, he says, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Uh, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You hear what he's saying there? When we practice the truth, when we live out the gospel, we adorn the gospel. Attractive truth is applied truth. You say that the other way around too, couldn't you? Applied truth is attractive truth. Somebody says, but but I've been through the Bible ten times, cover to cover. Well, that's great, but has the Bible been through you? The Bible's not meant to just also just uh, intellectually excite us. You can get mentally excited by the truth, but you can fail to be morally changed by it. Folks, we settle, tragically, we settle for knowledge rather than experience. Do you remember the tragic story of Kitty Genovese? She was a young lady who was brutally attacked, beaten, raped, and ultimately killed in a fashionable New York City neighborhood. 
And in the aftermath of the crime, reporters interviewed countless neighbors to find out if anybody had any clues. Incredibly, they learned that 38 people had heard her screams. In fact, some said they'd even witnessed the attack, but nobody came to her rescue. Kitty's murder was a watershed moment in American culture. Sociologists reflected on her murder and have asked, how could we develop a society in which a human being could be attacked so viciously with the public's knowledge and yet no one helped? That's the tragedy of knowledge that doesn't create or end in responsibility. Knowledge ought to end in responsibility or in action. And so from from cover to cover, the Bible teaches that the moment you know God's truth, the ball is in your court. You're responsible for putting it into action. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, He who has my words and acts on them will be like a builder who builds his house on the rock. The winds came, the rain fell, the winds came, the flood waters rose, and yet the house stood. Storms still came, trials still came, but it stood. Who was it again? The person who has his words and keeps them. But he said, the one who has my words and doesn't put them into practice will be like a Foolish man who built his house on the sand. All these same things happened to it. The the water, the winds, the rain, and it collapsed. And great was the collapse of it. Classic illustration of interpretation without application is the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. They had all the data. They had all the prophecies And yet they didn't even get out of their easy chairs and go down to Bethlehem when they heard, uh, when, when, when they told the wise men where Jesus was to be born. The wise men came looking. We've seen a star. Where is he to be born? They had all the knowledge. The wise men went to investigate. The people with all the knowledge didn't even so much as go. No wonder, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Their righteousness was just external. It was based on facts and knowledge without application, without life change. Folks, we substitute superficial obedience for substantive life change. This is where we apply scripture to those areas of life that suit us and we leave other areas untouched. Ephesians 4.25 deals with honesty. Here's a businessman that says, I'm honest with my wife, I'm honest with my children, I'm honest with my work associates, but meanwhile he conveniently overlooks that he's not honest with his competitors. Or he rationalizes. Same guy says, but you've got to understand my competitors. They're not Christians. I couldn't compete with them in the marketplace if I was honest. So we conveniently pick those things that we will apply. Sometimes we substitute emotion for a volitional decision. 
We love a Sunday school teacher who can pull our chain. We go to his or her class. We're overwhelmed with the lesson. We leave by telling them it's the best lesson we've ever heard. But two days later, you ask them what it was about or what they've done with it. And they don't even remember what the lesson was about. What happened? An emotional response without making any type of life-changing application. Remember what I've quoted Adrian Rogers a minute ago. Remember what he said, uh, uh, a sign ought to be in every church lobby. Anybody remember what he said about that? Sign that ought to be in every church lobby. Warning church attendance may be hazardous to your life. He said because you can be held accountable for what you hear. You're going to be held accountable for what you hear. Howard Hendricks tells of one time where he was preaching on the importance of Christians evangelizing the world, beginning right where they were. There's a young couple that went home, had lunch, put their kids down for a nap, then went into their living room, began reading and discussing the sermon for that day. They began praying about what they ought to do with it. They got up from praying and their neighbor, who never went to church, gave no indication that he was a believer, was out cutting grass. They looked at each other. The husband immediately went outside, went over, invited the man and his wife over for supper the next week. They built a friendship with that couple, continued to pray for them, eventually led them to Christ. They started doing that systematically with all of their friends. What were they doing? Applying the truth of the Great Commission. Exactly. Exactly. Well, as we think about a look in the mirror, what's James say? James tells us what we ought to be doing. The Word of God's like a mirror that exposes our faults, right? But he says if, if we look at it and then go away and don't do anything about it. We're like somebody who's looked in the mirror and we see how we're all tussled up and not ready to go out, but we go out anyway without making any correction. The Word of God ought to be a mirror that helps us to correct our life. To follow the Lord in practical ways. Jesus, you'll remember, said in in John 13, talking about servanthood, he told his disciples, you go and do what I've just done and you'll be blessed if you do. Let's think about some steps in application. First of all, know, if you want to know If you want to apply the Bible, you need to know the text. Application can't begin until you understand the text. Know the text. Also know yourself related to that. What's your strengths and weaknesses? Where's the Bible uh, hit you the most? Romans 12, 3 says, Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Then we've got to relate. After knowing, we've got to relate. We must relate the Bible to us. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 about all those Old Testament examples? What did he say about those? 
They're examples to us. The things that are written are written for our benefit. The Bible speaks about a new relationship to God, a new relationship to others. It exposes your sin. It gives you promises, gives you commands, and gives you examples to follow. So you've got to know the Scripture, relate it to your life, meditate on it, meditate. Don't just breeze over it. And then practice. Practice. Always walk away from your daily devotion with some type of thought about what you need to do with what you've studied that day. If you've studied a passage on prayer, for instance, and learned something new about prayer, incorporate that into your prayer life. Now, questions to ask to encourage application. Is there an example for me to follow? Bible characters are great to study on this. Uh, For instance, Abraham's intercession of Sodom and Gomorrah. What's an application for me? I need to be praying for those people around me, right? Am I praying for people around me that they might not face God's judgment? So is there an example to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to offer? Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there a verse to memorize? Is there a challenge to face? Ask very application-oriented questions as you close out your Bible study. Application-oriented questions. And then remember, as you're interpreting the Bible and applying it, principles are wonderful things. The Bible doesn't address every single possible scenario. Every member of the human race will face every day of their lives. If it, if it addressed Every situation that every human being faced, all the trains and airplanes and trucks wouldn't be big enough to carry the Bible. The Bible gives us commands and instructions, but it also lays down principles. Now, between the commands and and, and instructions and the principles, yeah, the Bible, you can, every situation I face, the Bible speaks to. But the Bible isn't going to tell you what to do, for instance, with every person you run into tomorrow. You're going to meet so-and-so, and and here's what they're going to say, and here's what you're going to do. Every scenario that everybody faced every day of their lives, the world wouldn't be big enough to hold the Bible. But it gives us principles to apply to every situation in life. Nothing so applicable to life as the Scripture. When somebody says they don't read it, they don't try to read it, study it, interpret it, and apply it because it's an out-of-date book, they don't know what they're talking about. 
The Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. But again, we've got to observe it. Careful there so we'll find out what it means. And if we've done our study correctly, and I'm studying a passage, and Ed, for example, is studying a passage, we ought to come out at the same meaning if we've done our homework. But again, it may speak to him in a different way, application that it speaks to me. Same meaning, different interpretation. And then I have to ask the application-oriented questions and live it out. It's not meant for simple intellectual stimulation, but it's meant for transformation. Amen? Any questions, comments, something you've learned about interpretation or application that you want to add? No? Is that good or bad? There's no. That might be bad. It's like the Holy Spirit just shows you that day how something that happened related to something you, you might have been studying that week. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of like the idea that uh, God wants us to kind of use the principles uh, to work our way through life because they can, uh, it may take more than one principle, it may take two or three to get you through given situation. Hmm. I mean, if, if you take all the principles taught, you know, you have uh, the ingredients to a myriad of different uh, solutions to things you're going to run in your life. Hmm. life uh, you know, also, you're talking about the sanctification when you do your studies and stuff like that. Looking at the whole counsel of God. Right. And, I mean, think about just that one subject, practical sanctification versus positional sanctification. Right.